Welcome to Film Fam, inspired by true events. I'm Heather. I'm Brian. And I'm Zoe. We're the Greys, and we're your Film Fam. For today's companion mini-sode to our Frankenstein episode, we are so excited to be talking to horror writer, playwright, scholar, audio drama producer, Jameson Reidenauer. Welcome to the podcast, Jameson. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So you're our horror expert. You've written, let's see, novels, plays, short films, nonfiction. You write and produce an audio drama. You teach literature and writing, and you have a PhD in Victorian Gothic fiction. So we Super are perfect, basically. so excited. <laughs> so perfect. Thanks. And so excited to talk to you about horror and Frankenstein today. Cool. I sound, I sound so much cooler than I am when you say it all together like that it's kind of kind of fun <laughs> kind of a show off yeah I, I i first met you when i was in your creative writing class and then like That's years right. years later i was looking i was at a bookstore and i found a copy of carmilla that no that joke had really your name on the front and i'm like am i Am I the friend and erstwhile student of <laughs> this version of Carmilla's author? And yeah. Yes, I was. Well, cool. It's my that claim make, to fame. That makes me happy that that my that, that was out in the world findable like that. Jameson, how did you get into horror? Like, well, uh, it's a it's a pretty specific path, but I can tell you how it started. Um, it started when I was ten or eleven. My parents got divorced. That's not the horror part. Um, although I did write a Frankenstein-themed poem about it later. Oh my so gosh. for about a year and a half between my parents' divorce and my mother marrying my stepfather, um, it was just me and my two brothers who were younger than I was uh, living with my mother. And my mother is a big horror fan, or she's a big fan of, of gothic. Um, like She doesn't like slasher films or anything, but she likes you know, Rebecca and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that year and a half, and I was 11 to almost 12, every Friday night in Florence, South Carolina, where I lived, um, there was a horror movie double feature. There was like some uh, grandpa guy dressed up like a vampire who would introduce <laughs> usually an episode of, of Darren McGavin's The Night Stalker, which is absolutely bad and in, in, in all the best ways. <laughs> And then, <laughs> then a black and white horror film, you know, one of the Universal films, or or you know, Bela Lugosi, Boris Karloff, um, The Cat People, uh, things like that. And it was like a, it was a comfort thing. It was something me and my mother did together. My brothers had already gone to bed, and I got to sit up late because it would be two a.m. before they were done. Um, and so that was cool, and I just fell in love with it, like. Like then that became my thing, and and also around the time I was eleven, I checked the novel Dracula out of the public library in Florence, and um and read it and didn't understand most of it, but um, <laughs> but loved it, yeah. So this guy who had this show on, it's kind of like um, the character in uh, what's that movie with the vampire and the kids and they go oh Fright Night like Fright Night. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but he was not that cool at all. This was this was um, I don't actually remember. I wish I could remember his name. What he called himself. It was sort of you know the, the uh, local TV host doing this kind of thing, dressing up like horror characters was like a tradition going back to the fifties. It's, it's Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and mm. all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Oh, we we still watch Sven Gulli. Yeah, exactly. Well, this was a poor man's Sven Gulli. 
Um, so it was just some <laughs> some schmo that worked at the local radio, the TV station in Florence, South Carolina, who who they you know schnookered into putting on a Dracula <laughs> costume every Friday night. No joke, that is all I aspire to be. Right? What a gig. What a great gig. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I would love to be that schmo. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, that, that was, um, but that's how it started. And then after that, I was um, lucky enough to come of age during the second big horror wave. Uh, the first mm-hmm. horror wave in the late 60s and 70s with like Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist. And, uh, and then when I was in high school, I started high school in 1983. So I was reading Stephen King novels as they came out. That was during Helicon's most prolific period. So I was reading Pet Cemetery, and, and you know, uh, I, I, when Christine came out, I went and bought it at the bookstore the week it came out. And, and I just read King, and from King I read um, Peter Straub, who's still my favorite author, horror author. Mm-hmm. And I got Stephen King's Dance Macabre. Right when I started college, mm-hmm. and in the back of that, he's got here are the hundred best horror movies. Here are the hundred best horror novels. Oh. And so for like two or three years in college, I used that as my like I'm going to take King's list and read Ramsey Campbell and um, you know all the the 80s was a great horror decade. I'll look and see if I can <laughs> find that list. That would be an interesting thing to link to for this episode because yeah, I'm interested I 100% in seeing that want to do that. I want to be that college sure. kid going through Stephen King's list. Yeah, I, I mean it's it's really <laughs> it's really circumscribed like like Dance Macabre is a nonfiction history of horror from 1950 to 1980. So it's really like a only within this time period. Um so it doesn't include like I don't even think Friday the 13th is on it because it it's comes just right. up to that era and stops but there's all these like gems of things that i would never have discovered on my own that weren't really in the popular consciousness that king felt like we should read and i did what he told me back then so it's so funny talking <laughs> about stephen king because like my mom was a huge stephen king aficionado when she was a kid and so then i was when i was a kid because we had mm-hmm. him on all the bookshelves but i just had the weird experience of like growing up with it knowing that my mom grew up with it who's of y'all's generation and then i just like a month or two ago got the most recent book he released and read it here at college like it's weird Mm -hmm. to have like an author that's so important to my childhood and my parents childhood that's like still cranking and cranking them out like right now and i'm reading them in real time it's it's yeah he doesn't stop he doesn't stop yeah Yeah. (laughs) speaking of do you consider the movie of frankenstein a horror movie yeah it was they didn't use the term in the 30s like we use it as a genre of like you could find a horror section in barnes and noble they didn't they wouldn't have said that i mean they would have used terms like um uh it was a thriller um the great book on this era um is by david skull it's called the monster show um, and it's really good. And he would he would know exactly what what the, the phrases they use for it. They would have said it was horrific or there was horror involved, <laughs> but they wouldn't have called it horror film, horror movie. Partially because these were the first movies that did this. They call them monster movies a lot. Um, but there wasn't a genre. It wasn't like, oh, here's another horror film or this is a film that does what these other things have done. It was like, holy crap, we've never seen anything like Frankenstein on film before. So it was, um, even though the book was an established thing, obviously. And then the book um, at its time was inventing or a first foray into something. Yeah, the for... book is, um, I think I said this in my email back to Heather when we were talking about it, that, that I'm, uh, 
I'm strongly the opinion that Frankenstein is not a gothic novel. It's a science fiction novel. Mm -hmm. um, because I define gothic and, and uh, a lot of, I am not the only scholar to do this, um, but, but I define gothic as uh, being about fear of the past, the past coming back to haunt you in some way. Um, and that could be your personal past. It could be the past of the region or area around you. It can be the, uh, the primitive or primeval past. Uh, Jekyll and Hyde does that to a degree where you're like de-evolving back into apishness. Um, but it's something about the past haunting us and refusing to stay dead. Um, Frankenstein is a mad scientist novel. And it's about yeah. reaching for knowledge beyond what we're supposed to be able to do. And so it, I, I class it with like Island of Dr. Moreau or other novels, which are really more about fear of the future or fear of what man is capable of doing. Nobody ever thinks that or agrees with me. So it's, I only get to say <laughs> it on places like this. <laughs> um, Peter Straub says um, that uh, horror isn't a genre, it's a mode. And that any, any form of writing in any genre can drop into horror at any time. You can have horror moments in other, because there's moments of horror in Over the Garden Wall. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I wouldn't call, I wouldn't say oh, this is a horror cartoon. Um, you know, it, it, I, um, I subscribe to Shudder. Do you, are you guys on Shudder? I don't have Shudder. So, no. it's, it's the, the it's, horror, like, Amazon Yeah, it's like Netflix Streaming for service. Yeah. And, and uh, I get really irritated at the um, user comments because they have reviews on each movie. And they have a really wide range of things. They have some really crappy things. They have some like classic giallo films. They have new stuff they do. But invariably, no matter what it is, there'll be somebody underneath that gives it like a one-star review and says, well, it's a fine movie, but it's not horror. Because they've got this narrow definition of, you know, there wasn't, uh, you know, the quantity of blood wasn't big enough or I didn't see, you know, or, or whatever. Um, Wait a second, Jameson. You're saying that you read comments sometimes and you find them annoying? I do. I do. It's weird. It's weird. Um, no, it's a, a it's a weird genre. I mean, people think weird things about it, and they think weird things about those of us who make it. Um, so you hear that too. <laughs> I mean, that's why I think Mary Shelley is so fantastic because I think men a little bit get more of a leeway to love horror than. When women do, we raise a little bit more eyebrows or like, what does that mm -hmm. mean about you? If you love horror or you write horror and Mary Shelley's just such a good role model for that to be allowed. Yeah. Did you guys talk about the whole opium party in Geneva that caused Frankenstein oh, yeah. on your other? Okay. Good. <laughs> yeah, we did. Super good, cool, fun, cool. Super cool, fun cool. times. Yeah. Yeah. Good times. The men uh, who were there. Yeah. We, we, we started that story in, in, uh, 536 and uh, and then worked our way toward that yeah yeah brian brought talked about um the fact that there was a volcano that happened mm -hmm. and the the summer without the year without sun a summer, or the yeah. year without summer yeah. right right 1816 i actually want to ask you about that because i did some of the research on the villa diodati and all of that and what i have found myself so curious about is the figure of john polidori because yeah he is he comes across as such a dark horse. I feel like I want to write a th thesis on him There's because a, he. There's a lot yeah. to be said about him. Yeah, 
I just <laughs> yeah. talked. I just started teaching Dracula in my Victorian Lake class this morning, mm. and we did a whole thing on John Polidori because it's the origin of Dracula as well. I mean, we get Dracula right. and Frankenstein from that that party. Uh, we didn't get anything from uh, from <laughs> Percy Shelley. Did you guys discover why Percy Shelley did not participate in the ghost story competition? No, I would love to know why. He took too much opium, and he had a, he had visions of a woman uh, approaching him who had eyes instead of nipples, and he was no, terrified. He terrified, and he locked that. he locked himself in his room and refused to come out. So so <laughs> Percy Shelley was cowering in his bed. Isn't that amazing? That's my favorite part of the story. <laughs> yeah, and that's the next, like, uh, you know, universal monster character that we need to be exploring. <laughs> right, it's, right. It's Dracula, creature with eyes and, and, and nipple eyes. And nip, nipple eye woman, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a lot of opium, man. Um, so, so Polidori, I don't know how much of this you already know. I mean, Polidori was Byron's um, personal physician and probably his lover. Uh, and so Byron, they were in Switzerland because they had fled England because the, a scandal had broken that the Byron incest, had been accused, accused yeah. of sleeping with his sister, which is almost certainly true. Um, and he, he was his half-sister, and, and he had a, a daughter with her. Um, so he left. Um, and Byron is just the original you know, bad boy of rock and roll, of poetry. He was a horrible person. Um, so, so they go down there, Polidori goes with him, and whether or not they actually had an affair, Polidori was definitely in love with Byron. That's so, the sense I get. <laughs> yeah, so a few uh, weeks after they get there, Claire Claremont shows up. Claire Claremont is a cousin of the Shelleys, and she's likely pre pregnant with Byron's child, so as uh, it appears to be half the women in England were. But she, 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 she shows up like pining for Byron and also just like, you need to take care of my child. And Byron begins to pay attention to her and ignore Polidori. And knowing Byron, he likely played the drama here. Um, right. So Polidori felt shunned. He felt cast off. He challenged Byron to a duel over this woman. And Byron did what's the most shameful thing you can do to someone who challenges you to, to a duel. He laughed at him and sent him away. Um, Ooh, instead of aww. actually doing the duel, he laughed and sent him off. So Baldori goes back to England and writes The Vampire, um, which published in 1819, which includes a character who is Lord Byron. Um, he's called Lord Ruthven, and he is a womanizer and a seducer and a vampire, and it is a massive hit. And from that point on, and not before that, the figure of the vampire as a cold, aloof, aristocratic figure becomes a theme that you see woven through the vampire stories in the rest of the 19th century. So by the time it gets to Bram Stoker, what, 70 years later, um, it's, it's just a trope. It's like, obviously, the vampire's account, because that's what we started with. But yeah, it's all because um, Lord Byron was a dick to John Polidori and so he wrote a he but wrote like a, a hot dick a hot dick <laughs> and, and, and so so that like the figure of the vampire that we have that aristocratic vampire is really just it's it's um it's it's bitchy ex-boyfriend fan fiction yeah. <laughs> that, that Polidori well, wrote and it's so funny because like Byron and, and Percy Shelley are like such big names but really like they did not like the things that came out of that that trip that vacation were not by them but inspired no. by just how shitty like they're just such shitty yeah. men yeah and exactly like, 
Mary Shelley and John Polidori were like, I'm going to write a story about feeling unloved by these shitty famous poet men. Yeah. And those stories became famous. And yet, like, I don't think most of the people that I know know who John Polidori is, but they know Lord Byron. <laughs> that, well, and weirdly, the, the works become more famous. Like, most people don't know who John Polidori is, but most people couldn't name five works by Byron. Right. You know, right. we know who Byron is because he was such a larger than life figure. But have people read Child Pil Harold's Pilgrimage or Don Juan? No. Um, I did. So you don't have to. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, right. That's like Byron and Shelley. People know their names, but way more people are familiar with the story of a vampire and Frankenstein. Or Frankenstein. Yeah, exactly. So right. And what that like became afterwards. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. In the in the public. Yeah, they just they just didn't die. They just kept kept going and kept going. Um, Car Carmilla is my favorite vampire story, and I feel like she drew heavily on Polidori. Yeah, Carmilla's so yeah. good. <laughs> I I could talk so much more about Lord Byron. There's I want to recommend a a play that I was in just last semester called Arcadia by Tom Stoppard that has hell a, yeah yeah fictionalized yeah. <laughs> kind of story about about byron um yeah all you podcast listeners it's a good show you should go read it <laughs> yeah and, and there's more i mean we can say he inspired the vampire but the the byronic hero which is what that mm -hmm. character is called that byron used in all of his works is in everything i mean it's the um i am an aloof um damaged brooding dark-haired man who I'm, I'm hot, but but uh, I've got a secret, and uh, that secret can probably be solved by the love of a good woman if I'll let her close. I mean, th that's a trope you recognize, right? Um, yeah. it, right. It's in, it's every Bronte sisters um, main character. It's uh, it's it's even like it's John Wayne, it's Clint Eastwood. It's a, it, it's a figure that we see again and again and again. The sort of brooding, broken antihero. That's Byron. I mean, he he we have him to thank for or blame for all of that. <clears throat> Both. He was a I'll, fascinating I'll guy. I'll thank him and blame him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a character arch archetype that I love, but it also just makes me think about how, like, those, like, his legacy is canonized. And we do think about, like, Frankenstein's monster, like, that is a trope. But when we think of it, we don't, we don't call it, like, the, the Mary Shelley-esque uh, right. abandoned <laughs> intelligence. Yeah, yeah. I think that the creature is the most compelling character in Frankenstein. He's sure. absolutely <laughs> sympathetic. Yeah. Yeah. He's not monstrous. He's presented as monstrous in various parts of the book, but he's oh, definitely no. to be sympathized with. Yeah. I mean, that's most of what we talked about when we were talking about Franken about Mary Shelley is um, less about the science fiction, because I feel like it is about like what we could do in the future. Um, but, you know, she doesn't really get into any kind of, like, how it was made. Yeah. So I, I talked more about just the the grief and the loss and the monstrousness mm -hmm. of all of these various things that happened to her in her life and mm -hmm. how, I, you know, just it's, how we saw that in the monster. It's true. They don't go into the, the mechanism. I but mean, it's galvanism she, somehow. Yeah. <laughs> right, she, right. She clearly gives the impression that it was thought out planned, organized, experimented, followed the scientific method. Uh, and, you know, it was, it was kind of the first book to, uh, to put all of those pieces together and, uh, and, and say that the plot is now driven by somebody who went down this path and did this purposefully. Yeah. 
About the movie, are you um, are you a fan? Yeah, I think I think Bride is better. Yeah, Br- I, I agree. I feel that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am a fan. James Whale is a, a fantastic. Per, uh, I started to say character, but he really was a character. Um, so yeah, I love him. Pretty openly gay in the 1930s in Hollywood. Um, yeah, that's pretty awesome. So there's a so it's a queer film in a lot of ways because right. anything M- Whale made was. And I. I mean, that. that's how we read it <laughs> when we were talking about the film. Um, I kind of leaned hard into it as a queer film. And mm-hmm. I, I think Bride of Frankenstein is um, more obvious, but I think Frankenstein is pretty, it can be pretty clearly be read that way. Yeah, I think so too. And not just because he was gay, but I can see, uh, you know, the outsider, the persecuted, the come back mm-hmm. and, and be a heteronormative person, Frankenstein, and, you know, all... Right, right. And I'm, yeah. being, I, I'm, I'm being persecuted for something that's not, that's not my fault. I literally was made this way. And I'm trying to right. do my yeah. best and trying to be good, and the and society won't let me do that. No, absolutely, mm-hmm. it works that way. And I guess it's more obvious in Bride because you've got the incredible Doctor Pretorius, um, played by oh, what's his name? Oh, I can't yeah. remember his name, but I love that we, actor. We talked about him last time, right? Who's who's also a, a gay actor or bisexual? Yeah, 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 he was a bisexual actor, and and just uh, apparently like very flamboyant even for um like openly and because whale was like it was like an open secret that he was gay but it wasn't you know it wasn't safe to like just you know gay at everybody while you walked around the streets but but um what's his name i can't remember his name ernest 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 thessiker yeah he's also in a um there's a movie that whale made between those two movies called The Old Dark House that I just oh, watched. Oh, my parents oh, yeah. watched that just recently. Yeah. Well, he's in that too. He's the brother, the afraid brother. But my favorite thing about Ernest Essinger is that apparently he he was a he did cross stitch. That was his thing. <laughs> oh. And on set, he always had stuff there. And he called himself. He referred to himself as the stitching bitch. And, and, <laughs> I love that. and he would and he would apparently just burst into a room. The stitching bitch is here. Let's get started. And and. I adore him. I think he's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, his character is so, like, archly queer. Yeah. It's pretty wonderful. Okay, well, what is your favorite classic horror film? Uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm. Oh, that's nice. great. There's a yeah. book that just came out called something like The Lady the from, lady the, from Black- the Black Lagoon. About the woman that designed the costume, yeah. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, that's something I'll have to get into at some point. I've heard it's really good. She apparently, I can't remember her name. She apparently was like a really prominent uh, makeup artist and special effects artist in the 40s and 50s. One of the only women to do it at that time. Oh. Yeah. Well, what's your favorite slasher flick? Uh, classic slasher or resurgent slasher? 70s, 80s. Okay. I will give the caveat that I have uh, I have a play opening in October called Bloodbath that is a slasher play, stage play. Um, oh my gosh. And it was supposed to open last October, but it got COVIDed into this year. Um, so we're actually having a read through next weekend as, to start it up again. So in preparation, or while I was writing that play in 2019, early 2020, um, I watched something like 
45 slasher films back to back. Like I was watching a slasher film a night. Um, But my favorite one is what I would consider the first slasher film, which is the 1974 Canadian Black Christmas. Black Christmas. With Olivia Hussey. It's so good. A terrifying movie, even by today's standards. The phone calls are scary. The phone calls are scary. Yeah. And and you've got got Margot Kidder being absolutely Mm -hmm. amazing. You've got Olivia Hussey, who is just uh, gorgeous and perfect, and her acting is just on point. Um, you've got uh, uh, John Saxon in the first of his many roles as a um, as the the cop, the in, cop a, in a yeah. horror film. Um, I'm interested in knowing more about the slasher play that you're making. I'm working on a slasher play right now, actually. Oh, I would love to see And I didn't it. know that was a big genre. So I don't I'm think it is. I, one of the things I like to do as a playwright is. Um, try and do things that haven't been done on stage before. And so I, because I'm a horror movie fan, I really feel like it ought to be possible to do the things that happen in horror films, the, the tropes and the, and the even like methods of making people scared. I feel like you ought to be able to pull that off in live theater. And I've, and I've rarely seen it done well. I have occasionally seen it done well. I saw a woman in black on at the West End in London and it scared the crap out of me. Um, but often it's not. And so I, I so I've, you know, I, my play Grave Lullaby was a kind of a classic M.R. James style ghost story. Um, I've done a, um, I did an immersive zombie play that was Ooh. where basically the zombie apocalypse happens outside the theater you're sitting in. It was a one act. Um, and just trying to, you know, that is it possible awesome. to do it? So, so things like, like, the classic slasher uh, move, I think this first happened in Halloween, the original Halloween, where like you're panning across and as you pan across, the killer sits up or something happens and it kind of mm-hmm. passes by in the background. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm really fascinated by the way the camera shows us what it wants us to see. And in theater, you don't have any control over that because audiences can watch anything they want, wherever they want. And so... I take it as a challenge to like, can I do that kind of sleight of hand? Can I force the audience to watch something on this side of the stage while I set up something they don't see coming over here? And right, I love that kind of shit. You can't do a close-up no, you can't. on somebody that doesn't show who's behind them. And right. And it pulls out to right. show who's behind them. Right. So you've got to figure well, out how you do that um, without controlling the audience. I mean, that sounds like a great challenge. And I'm just thinking about in Halloween... There's the part where he sits up like the Undertaker, or the Undertaker mm-hmm. sits up like him in yeah. the future, but the Undertaker <laughs> sit. Um, but there's also when Laurie is going up the stairs at the house across the street, and he's actually silhouetted in the doorway. Her. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And she turn- and then you see him, but she doesn't, and right. you start to see it later. And I'm thinking how you could do a little magic over like everyone's looking at this, but then. This yeah, guy standing over that, here. That's that what would I would scary. like to do. This kind of things, and and for like for the slasher, the slasher play is um is called Bloodbath, Victoria's Secret. Um, <laughs> ah! I wanted to call it Bloodbath and Beyond, Victoria's Secret. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so good. But there's already a horror movie podcast out there called Bloodbath oh. and Beyond. But but I felt pretty proud of that when I came up with it. But anyhow, it's about a woman named uh, Victoria Lee. Tori Piper is her stage name. And she was a scream queen in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, she was the go-to final girl. And she's been in retirement for a while, but she's thinking about coming back. Yeah, talk to us about your horror podcast. 
or audio drama? My audio drama is my favorite thing I have ever done. It is it mm -hmm. is my favorite thing ever. It's called Palimpsest. Um, and our tagline is, it's about memory, identity, and the things that haunt us. Um, it is mostly single-voiced, although there's usually at least one episode per season where we have other actors come in. Um, but it's mainly a monologue. And each season is 10 episodes long, and it's a different story and character, and really genre, every every season. And we're about to start season, actually we dropped the first episode of season four on April 13th. So season one was um, a, a classic ghost story in the Peter mm -hmm. Straub, M.R. James style about a woman who's lost her sister about 10 years ago and she's just gone through a breakup. She's living in an apartment by herself for the first time and she's having a hard time letting go of her sister and her sister might be having a hard time letting go of her. And there, mm -hmm. um, season two is a queer fairy love story set in the 19th century. Um, Amazing. Uh, a woman is hired. She runs away from a kind of abusive home life and gets hired as the maidservant to this tiny woman in a high end <laughs> freak show. Um, and so she's hired yeah. to be her her assistant and very quickly sort of falls for the the tiny woman whose name is Sersha. And awesome. and very quickly realizes that maybe the freaks in this freak show are they're exhibited as being fairies and maybe they're real mm. like like some of them are kind of scary and some of them are are different acting and then Sersha asks her tells her i need you to help us escape because we're we're being held here against our will uh, that's that story and then season three was uh set during london in the blitz um and it's a sort of cosmic horror slash folk mm. horror about an american code breaker who's been fired from her job as a code breaker and just is living in a boarding house in London and is begins seeing the ghost of the London dead first just the dead from the war but then the dead throughout the history of London walking the streets and they seem to be able to see her and want something from her so that's what we've done that so far awesome I'm actually yeah. just I definitely need to hear now, that one I'm thinking now about your definition of what a gothic is and mm -hmm. and what palimpsest means which you know it's it's a for our listeners it's a piece of paper that that had writing on it that mm -hmm. was erased or covered up with now like new writing and material mm -hmm. over top you can still see the the old stuff coming through and I mean I think if that's part of your you know like artist yeah. statement about gothic is like constantly being haunted by the past or unable to get rid of some yeah like scary parts of the past i just kind of put that together yeah the I past always the past shows through no matter how much you try and paint over it no matter how much you try and rewrite it the original thing always there's traces that always show i love that that's and that's why we called it that yeah so we also have um at least there's a moment in every season where i try to organically and not um not clunkily uh, the, the main character defines the word palimpsest <laughs> or uses the word palimpsest in a way that, that new listeners can be like, you know, what the hell does your title mean? <laughs> and and it was just, it sounded clever. I felt very smart when we did it and just like nobody can pronounce it. Nobody can spell it. <laughs> nobody knows what it means. It's like, um, you know, so I, I really shot myself in the foot. <laughs> Jameson, I'm going to have to get some recommendations from you. Okay. Um, okay. So... What if someone who's like, I don't really know, I might get too scared with horror movies. I don't know if I'd like horror movies, but 
I'm listening to this podcast and now I feel like I do want to watch a horror movie. Uh, what would you recommend to this person who I just made up? Um, I mean, I get asked that a lot. I, I get it's the only genre where people will like go out of their way to insult the genre that you write in. Like, I, I, I'm really like, like I'll be having a conversation on Facebook about the fact that I write horror and somebody will say something. And then somebody like I don't even know will just show up on the thread and say, oh, I could never read anything that you write because I hate horror. I just wanted to show up and tell you that. I was like, thanks. I think that nobody's like, uh, oh, I hate romance. I would never read you your romance novel. Um, but, um, actually, men, <laughs> men do that. Ma- maybe, men, yeah, men do that nah, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. I guess that's true. So, so I take it back. Um, but I think I go back to, the, to, for that recommendation for that fictional person, I go back to, uh, what I said earlier about horror, not being a genre, but being a mode. And so I, I think the honest answer to them is, you probably already like something or know of something that has moments of horror in it. You just didn't think that's what it was because it wasn't labeled that or whatever. Um, but there are all kinds of, of shows that have moments of horror in them. But I would say there's some, particularly, in, we're in a resurgence. We have, we're in a, a renaissance of good horror. So I would say um, uh, Jordan Peele, go to Jordan mm-hmm. Peele, go to Get yeah. Out. Not us, because us is a little bit slashery in the middle. But I would, I would do Get Out. Um, yeah. I would do Midsummer, which is just a beautiful fucking film. Oh my god! Probably the best horror movie of the last ten years, I think, is It Follows. I like that. Oh, I, I liked that. that. That was a controversial movie amongst the people that I knew. Like I liked it. I thought it was really good. I know some people my age who were like, that's such a stupid premise. I'm- what you the you're punished I mean you, the premise is you're being punished for, for being promiscuous. It's the premise of like right. every horror film of the nineteen eighties. So I mean it was Yeah. But but it's just so effectively done. And so one of my favorite things about horror is that it is self referential. Oh very, yeah, yeah. And so for yeah. people that are just getting into it, it's it's sometimes they miss what's going on because horror relies on you knowing the tropes, right? Horror, uh, like yeah. if, if you're going to have an exorcism film now, the assumption is you know about Linda Blair. You know about what that looks like and, and we're going to be able to play with that. Um, and sometimes that works against itself, I think. Well, that makes me think of Scream, which is one of Zoe's favorite mm-hmm. horror movies. But I started Zoe off, I was like, you're almost old enough to start watching horror movies. So let's start watching the old black and white Nosferatu. horror movies to get you ready. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that you understand, so that you've seen, you know, like you understand who Dracula is and Frankenstein and Nosferatu. Like, I want you to watch these first, and then we can start watching That's very the later smart. ones. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Jameson, yeah. we could obviously talk forever yeah. about horror movies <laughs> with you. Because we love it, and it's great to talk to someone who also seems to love it. Well, tell us where you can, where we can find that book, the name of it, and where we can find it. If you, I mean, if you want to get something of mine, um, my edition, I edited the scholarly edition of Carmela, the the um, that Zoe was talking about, and that's twelve dollars from Valancourt Press. And yeah, lesbian there. And, vampire. But you can also do Palimpsest for free, um, and you can go to my website and see it, my films are are on there for the most part. There's links to short fiction and poetry and. And what's your yeah. website? JamesonRidenourWriter.com. Well, that was 
so wonderful, James. That was. Yeah, thank you so thank much. Thank you for having me. This has been great. Like Film Fam, inspired by true events, subscribe to hear more stories that inspired our favorite films. For photos and links from the show and other shenanigans, follow us on Instagram at filmfampodcast, on Twitter at filmfam underscore podcast, or on Facebook at filmfam inspired by true events. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or films whose inspiration you'd like us to explore, you can email us at filmfampodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you all for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.